So, we want to set up your talk, Ricarda. So, Dr. Ricarda Menke is one of our senior image analysts in, in the Oxford Centre for Functional Magnetic Resonance of the Brain. So, this is a, a centre that's been up and running now for, we must be getting on for 15 years now. And it's really a, a premier centre for the development of new software and analysis techniques to use MRI to take it beyond what we do in the clinical realm, showing a picture of brain and spine to exclude things like tumours and things like MS, which many of you will have had done as part of your workup. Uh, I, hope, I hope you can hear me. Um, as Martin already said in the introduction, this talk is a bit complementary to the neuropathology talk, actually. So while neuropathology is a gold standard method to tell you about what was histopathologically wrong in certain disorders, can obviously not do it in vivo, uh, so in the living patient. Um, and that's when neuroimaging methods like MRI and uh, PET come in, which has the beauty that they can be very sensitive and show you changes in similar regions that you might find affected uh, in post-mortem investigations, but um, the beauty of it is that you can apply harmlessly in the living patient um, because all these uh, machines are relatively non-invasive. So, um, just as a quick overview, this has been uh, sort of mentioned several times now, but in my talk, on my slides, I will talk, I will probably use the terms gray matter and white matter relatively often, and just what I mean by this is shown here. So this is a, a nerve cell with a cell body, and here's a long fiber, um, which is called an axon. Um, when I talk about gray matter, I mean the nerve cell bodies, um, which are mostly um, localized on the surface of the brain. As you can see here, here's a brain from the side. Here's a cut through the middle, and here's a cut if you would cut like this through the brain, you would see a section like this. So the things that appear a bit more dark uh, on the surface, that's the gray matter and the white matter. Um, this is an assortment of long nerve fibers that, sh that show up a bit more white um, on a brain section. So um, just because I was asked to talk about MRI and PET, I um, just wanted to give you a brief, brief introduction of what these methods can, can measure. So MRI, um, this is what I'm, I'm mostly concerned with in my day-to-day -day work, is just a big, big magnet, basically. So the patient would lie here on a, on a bed, this is a big static magnet. Um, the head goes into a, one of those burn cage coils. And what it does, um, you have a strong magnetic field, you have electromagnetic waves coming from this coil, and um, in combination, this can be used to derive um, information about structure and function in the brain. And typically, um, a structural image would look like this. Um, you can see the brain in different orientations here. Um, these types of images are more um, something you would, might also do in, in a clinical workup. Um, so these kind of images show you very nicely, um, would show very nicely macroscopic changes in the brain. For instance, if you had a tumor or a stroke, you would see it quite nicely on this kind of image. Um, if you have um, gross, gross volume or atrophy or volume differences, um, you would also see it on these kind of images. Um, we also have now, at least in the research setting, um, this is quite common now, a bit more, more advanced techniques um, that can, on top of the macroscopic structure, also look at the, at the more microscopic changes in tissue. Um, one of these techniques um, is called diffusion tensor imaging, and what this just measures is basically the degree of water diffusion, so of water molecule movement 
um, along an axon, for instance. So you can see um, if you have enough fiber like this, diffusion along this fiber will be relatively free, and diffusion perpendicular to the fiber is relatively restricted. Um, and you can calculate these indices. Um, mostly we use mean diffusivity, which is the overall diffusivity, and fraction anisotropy, which is a measure, measure of how directional the diffusion is in the nerve fiber. And um, I'm going to show you a few, few results on these measures in PLS later on. And just to aid the interpretation, what's, what we normally say is if we find low FA and high mean diffusivity, um, it's interpreted as bad because that's what you see in many disorders um, in ALS and PLS, also Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. If you compare patients to controls, what you often see in relevant brain regions is that FA is relatively low, which means that mostly driven by this uh, diffusion that is not that restricted anymore, which is most likely caused by breakdown of these barriers here at the end, uh, at the surface of the, of the axon. That's, that's um, interpreted as being bad. Um, one thing we can also do with um, MRI is actually look at kind of correlates of your brain function. So um, when you know when the brain does a task, um, there's going to be electrical activity when the neurons communicate with each other. And this leads to an increase in glucose and oxygen con consumption, but also an increase in blood flow in the regions that are involved in a certain task in the brain. And the key point here is that uh, blood oxygenation in that area that's involved in the task changes, and oxygenated blood has different magnetic properties from um, there's actually oxygenated blood and this difference you can pick up with MRI. Okay. And the last thing, because uh, it's asked to also involve PET in my talk, um, just a brief overview um, for the short emission tomography. Um, that involves injection of a radioactive tracer into the bloodstream of a subject mostly. Um, then there's a bit of a waiting time until this tracer uh, this radioisotope um, sort of accumulates in, in the brain. Um, then this isotope will decay and emit a positron. A positron is something a bit like an electron, but the antiparticle. Um, then this positron can travel in the brain, will meet an, uh, an electron, and these two will then just annihilate, at least as we call it, so they will emit two photons, um, and these can be detected in a, in a scintillator. And then you can do some sort of computations and then in the end, you end up uh, actually a bit similar with an MRI picture of the brain and where you know these things go on in the brain. So um, now a bit to the coming to the literature of what are actually the imaging correlates in the, of, of the brain abnormalities in PLS that has been found so far. So um, I think I can echo the, the sentiments that have been. Uh, mentioned earlier today, actually there's not all that much out there to say as compared to, um, to, to ALS in general. Um, it was actually, so if you would type ALS into a search machine, into a search engine, you would get, get many, many imaging papers. Um, PLS was quite, um, quite, quite limited, so it seems comparably under-investigated. I think the earliest paper, I think that Martin has shown this already, um, I could find um, is a paper from 1992. Bring that up, and what they show here is uh, mainly that you have um, marked atrophy in the precentral gyrus in PLS. So this is a PLS patient. This is a healthy control of similar age, and this is an ALS patient for comparison. And you see, compared to the healthy control and the ALS patients, 
the prefrontal gyrus, as we call it here, in the PLS patients is, uh, is strongly atrophied. And on average, these are the average values across the, the different groups, the PLS, the healthy, and the ALS groups. And you can see here the precentral gyrus width is uh, a lot smaller in the PLS group as in the other two groups. And so there are several more studies in the, in the meantime that have all kind of consistently shown, shown the same thing um, on those structural images. Um, the most recent one, so that's basically the to show that you know, the same finding is still true nowadays, uh, basically 20 years after the first publication. That, um, these are two more recent publications showing the same thing, that basically cortical thickness, so this is ALS versus controls, and this is PLS versus controls. Um, the difference here in the preceptual gyrus is shown in blue, uh, and what you can see is that um, the cortical thickness, as we call it, so the thickness of the, of the gray matter rim, um, is reduced in patients uh, as compared to controls, and it seems more so in PLS than in ALS, in the precentral gyrus. Um, the similar um, pattern emerged from this study, where it's just shown here, these are the, the box plots, also average cortical thickness of the precentral gyrus in healthy controls, in clinical ALS, in, um, and then in upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron variants. So this upper motor neuron variant includes PLS, but also more typical ALS with stronger upper motor neuron involvement. Um, and you see the same pattern. So kind of um, the cortical thickness here is lowest in the, in the more UM and upper motor neuron heavy disorders. And is also affected in, in more typical ALS, but less so. Um, so this is another paper also essentially showing the same thing. I'm gonna so I, I picked this paper because it also shows you um, on the on the next slide nicely what happens to the white matter, so to, to the fiber, uh, to the longer fibers that are more in the center of the brain. But um, just for <clears throat> to keep it complete here, so they did the same thing. They also looked at the precentral gyrus at the same same reason that's affected in there publication, but what I said they also looked at is a, is a white matter with this diffusion tensor imaging technique that shows you um, how structure or how tissue is affected on a more microstructural level. And what they find here is also widespread um, white matter difference. So everything that's in color here, uh, in red, green, and blue here, um, is basically different, significantly different between patients and controls. So and this is the comparisons um, PLS with controls. You see widespread differences. And because they were also interested in uh, finding out whether PLS and ALS are different, they also did this comparison. And they still find differences here. Um, and it seems that kind of in the more, uh, in, the, in the corticospinal tract higher up and in the motor area of the corpus callosum, which is a tract that connects the two brain hemispheres, um, PLS patients seem to be more affected than ALS patients. <clears throat> As mentioned um, on a previous slide, you can also use uh, MRI to look at brain function, and that is one of the studies that uh, where they have done that. Um, so basically, I think I mentioned already that when you perform a task, for instance, you move your hand, um, you will you will get a response, or kind of a region in your brain will light up that corresponds to the to the um, finger tapping here. Um, it is also so that even as your brain is at rest and you don't 
do anything in particular, um, your brain, your blood flow in the brain kind of fluctuates. And the beauty of that is that it fluctuates similarly in different regions. And we call that, so if regions sort of fluctuate uh, in coherence, we call that they are functionally connected. Um, so, and what this study has looked at is, you know, different, different networks, so they picked these kind of networks, so the set of regions that are sort of correlated and wobbled together at rest, we call resting state networks. What they did is they picked a number of networks, they picked the sensory motor networks, so this includes the motor regions that are affected in ALS and PLS, um, and a few other, other networks, so this for instance, this priority would be the one that covers language areas where, where language is um, processed and so on. And for these networks they compared the connectivity between patients and controls, and what they found were differences again that's very much fits nicely with all the structural changes in the precentral gyrus that functional connectivity is higher here in a region in the precentral gyrus with the rest of the network here in a frontal region and also in a small region in the frontal loop with a left front parietal network. Yeah, and interestingly, I think I mentioned it's higher the functional connectivity so the, the regions, this region for instance seems to be more functionally connected with the rest of the network than patient as compared to controls. Um, this is another study, a slightly different methodological approach, but also looking at um, functional MRI at rest. Um, also showing um, a slightly different regions, um, uh, showing that these, these colored um, blocks are all the differences, again, where functional connectivity is higher with other regions in patients than in controls. So there seems to be something that, that's a consistent finding that we also find in ALS quite often that um, the connectivity seems to be higher, which might mean that there's a lack of inhibition somewhere in the brain um, <clears throat> in patients as compared to controls, which might be secondary due to structural fiber de degeneration. Sort of along these lines, this, this result here from a PET study would fit nicely as well. So this is a PET study using a fumazenal, um, a, a tracer that binds to the benzodiazepam subunit of the GABA receptor. And um, so basically what this shows you is in PLS and also in sporadic ALS, as com compared to controls, there's less binding of this receptor, um, mostly in the precentral gyrus, but also especially in ALS more in the frontal areas here as well. Um, and here is also a direct comparison done uh, to compare uh, typical ALS patients with PLS patients and it seems that in PLS um, the, the anterior and orbitofrontal regions might be a bit spared so there's less binding here in patients, in ALS patients than in PLS patients. And this group is also an ALS uh, group but um, those are patients with a certain gene mutation that makes them more prone for familiar areas. So, this was it. Just to summarize, um, so when you, especially when you compare PLS and ALS, again, along the lines of the questions, are they part of the same spectrum or not? Again, difficult to, to answer this question with the technique. The thing we can say is the gray matter atrophy in PLS um, is quite strong in the precentral gyrus, or the motor cortex. Um, it seems to be mostly limited to it, as, especially in patients who are cognitively normal. 
um, and seems to be slightly more pronounced in that region than in ALS. Um, similarly, white matter damage, so damage to the fiber tracts, um, is very similar in PLS to that you know, observed in ALS. But also there might be regions higher up in the CST and the motorcorrosive fibers that are more affected in PLS. Um, there are a few studies that showed that the functional connectivity, so the, the degree to which different brain regions in the brain talk to each other, is uh, a bit um, higher or increased in PLS as compared to controls. There hasn't been, to my knowledge, any direct comparison with, with ALS. And um, kind of in light of the last PET study I showed you that shows that, um, that this flumazinal binding is reduced in the motor cortex, that, that might, as I said before, mean that there's something, some lack of inhibition or anything um, going on here, and that's why functional connectivity is higher than in, in controls. And that's it. <laughs>